0: All righty, all righty. Can we get that, uh, so can we put the slide for the men's breakfast back up? Okay, that's not what the breakfast will look like. I just I felt like when we put that up, it was like, if that's what you're coming expecting, you will be thoroughly disappointed. So we might have coffee. That's about the, no, we'll have something. All right, if I haven't met you, I'm Rob. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. You can flip towards First John chapter 5. We're, we're nearing the end of our study in First John, we've been here for months and months, probably have about three more weeks or so, um, but uh, I trust, I hope it's been, if you tracked with us through it or through some of it, it's been a good journey. If this is your first Sunday, we're just glad you're here. Page 1023 in the Bibles in front of you, First John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Before we hear from the Lord, let's go to him in prayer together. Heavenly Father, it is an incredible privilege that you would speak to us, and I ask that you give us the grace to listen. This is a, 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 can, can be a very freeing text, a, a very life-shaping text, and to be able to hear it and receive it and respond to it, we need your intervention, and so we're asking for that. God, would you by the Spirit allow us to hear these words with the weightiness of worthy of God Almighty speaking. God, we gather together as a church on Sundays and throughout the week, and we want to open up your word, and we want to stir one another up, and we want to learn things, and and we we want to be challenged, and we want to to grow, and and all sorts of things. But what we need more, most, more, more than anything else, is to leave this time more impressed with Jesus Christ. So I pray that you would make him very loud in our songs, in our prayers, in our conversations, in communion, and I pray you would make it very loud in this sermon. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, I'm going to give you what I think is probably the most important thing I could possibly tell you. I'm going to let you in on something that will absolutely, radically, completely transform your life. And it's so important, I we made a slide for it. Put this slide up. All right. I'm a, now, now we're, we don't do this all the time. I'm not, we're, not gonna, we're not trying to like do, a, do a, a chant. I'm not going to put a spell on you, but maybe we could read this one together. You ready? Up, down, up, down, left, right, left, right, A, B, A, B, select, then. All right. Anyone know what that's from? Contra. This is the eternal life contra Code. so late 80s, early 90s, Contra, this video game with multiple levels, and you try to win the whole thing, and when I came across this code, it radically transformed my life. Radically transformed my ability to not lose my life in the game. Contra, I, I, you know, it's, it, before I came across a code, I try, I get a couple levels in, I'm not very good, I die. Got to start over. Try again, die, lose three lives, start over. You put this code in on the jungle, you got to wait till the jungle screen. So if you're going to go and do this, you got to wait. There's a specific screen where you have to do the code really fast, and then you have unlimited lives. It radically changes the game. Here's what it does. It guarantees that you will win. Guarantees it. Okay, that's it. Go find Contra. We're going to talk about the ultimate code. As cheesy as this setup is, and no doubt it's cheesy, we're going to look at a text that's going to tell you, this is how you win. This is the ultimate, divinely given code for life. And if we'll receive it, it changes everything. Specifically, we're going to look at this word, faith. We're going to look at it in three different ways. There's a lot of ways this could work out, but we'll look at at least three outcomes of faith. It is fruitful, it can be incredibly freeing, and that it is fierce. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, would you you stand with me? This is God's flawless and... Christ-exalting word for us. 1 John 5, 1 through 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Feel free to grab a seat. I'm going to ask for a little leeway here. We don't do this often as a church, but we're gonna, I'm going to do a little bit of a geek out on on grammar. I'm sure that's why you gathered today is to revisit English 101, but perhaps you can help me out here, and I think if we can get it, it'll be worth it for us. And so I want you to listen for the tense. What tense? When did this take place? We'll start at at verse one, the first part. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. What tense is that? When did that take place? Everyone who believes... Everyone who believes, is it past, is it future, is it present? It's present. You did wonderfully. All of your English teachers are crying right now. So it's present. Everyone who believes, it's actually what's called a, a present active. The person is believing. It's actually a parsnable. This a little ing words. It's actually everyone who is believing, okay? And then we have this, has been born of God. Past, present, or future, has been born. Past, you got, I love the confidence. I just feel like it's oozing from us. Yes, it is past, it's, and it's what's called a, a passive past. It's been done to somebody. They didn't do it themselves. It's, they didn't give birth to themselves. They have been born. So if we, we put this together... We could say something like this. It's something happened in the past. They have been born of God, which produces something in the present. They are now believing. We could say new birth produces belief. If we're going to put this into some some really rich, beautiful, theologically loaded Bible words, we would say something like this. Grace precedes faith. God's intervention produces our Response. There's a number of reasons this is such good news to us. One of these is this God goes first. It's always divine intervention before human activity, and that's really good news in the context of a text that is going to go on to a lot of stuff that we're to do. In the middle of a book, 1 John, which is a lot about what we do, in the middle of a sermon series called Stuff Christians Do. God goes first. He, in his kind intervention in our lives, is always the fountainhead that produces all of our responses. The other aspect of this, though, is this. God goes first, but also God doesn't let go. The has-been-born is not just past. It's actually this really neat case in in the original language. it's, It's what's known as a perfect. It's a perfect tense. It's something that's happened but has ongoing impact and effect, saying if you've been born of God, you're not going to get unborn of God. That God has begun something, and he will bring it to completion. Another part of the Bible uses that same perfect, when Christ is on the cross and he's given his life for all of those who will come to trust in him, and he just says, it is finished. Once and for all, for all time. Happened, Done. And the impacts continue to go and to go and to go. I'm going to push this even further, this, this intervention, this flooding in of God's grace, and we see it in the word believe. Everyone who believes. I went and did a little search, motivation and belief. So belief and motivation. So I, I, I searched that, um, came up with a number of posters and shirts and, you know, Macro-made, you know, pillows and, and things that take motivational phrases around belief. Some of them like this: um, "Believe you can, and you're halfway there." Is a reference. I think Roosevelt might have said that. "Believe you can, and you're halfway there." How about this one: "Self belief and hard work will always earn you success." If you can believe, you can, you can. If you can believe. Okay, if you can believe, you can achieve. Or simply this, I believe in me. Now, there's an aspect to this where it could be well thought and well played out. Um, But let me just offer you that's terrible advice. I believe in me. I'll give you an example of why that's terrible advice. My nieces were walking by a couple years, it was a number of years ago. They were probably like five or six. We live in the same neighborhood. And they're walking by with one of their friends who is a rock star gymnast. And uh, they come to our, our grass, we're hanging out in the front, and we're talking, and then their friend who's a rock star gymnast just does like a backflip, just does a backflip, and then does this like cartwheel thing without touching the ground, and then does a front handspring. And because I wanted to, to win the affections of my nieces, I said, you know, Uncle Rob can do that. And they said, no, you can't. And I said, yes, I can. And being the 38-year-old that I was at the time, didn't want to be um, you know, called out by my six-year-old nieces. And so I said, I'm going to do it right now. And they said, yeah, it's a bad idea, Uncle Rob I said, I don't care. I believe in me. And so I sat there. And I was like, and I, it really was. It's one of those moments. You know the moment where you're just like, this is a, I know this is dumb. <laughs> this is really stupid. But I can't back down now. I'm going for it. So I'm like, OK, you got this. You just saw this six-year-old do it. I'm sure you can do this. You've done a somersault once in your life. I'm sure you'll be all right. It's just, just go for it. Go for it. I believe in me. And I went for it. Guess how it worked out? Oh, it was horrible. The fact, like legitimately, the, an- the Lord had his angels guard me up so that I didn't snap my neck. I mean, it was, it, I'm laying on the ground and I'm just going, that was so stupid. It didn't, it didn't look good. It didn't look cool. It wasn't awesome. It was embarrassing. Self-belief does not always work out, but this text isn't inviting us to self-belief. It's not just saying believe. Like the code, what unlocks life is, is not just positive thoughts. There's an object to our belief. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. That phrase, Jesus and Christ, or Christ and Jesus, is used something like 227 times in the last third of the Bible. It's that important. Christ, it means anointed one. And what this is saying is that Jesus is the coming king. Jesus is the long-awaited intervener. Jesus is the, 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 the savior king, the servant king who needs to come to rescue and ransom his people, to bring them out of captivity and to bring them into life. The, 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 the name Jesus actually means God is salvation. The God who is salvation has come as the king. There's so much loaded up in this and what we're throwing our confidence. When we talk about belief that we're throwing our confidence onto We'll just do one passage, 1 John 2.1. We'll skip the chapter four, but 1 John 2.1. This is some of what we're saying in this. My little children, I'm writing to you these things so that you may not sin. But listen to this. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for... Our sins are not only ours, but for the whole world, the propitiation, of this wrath-bearing offering is saying, Jesus Christ is the righteous. Jesus Christ is the one who did all the good that everyone that's ever been created was meant to do and failed to do. Jesus is the one who perfectly obeyed, who perfectly loved, and then substitutionally died so that we might be liberated, and we might be forgiven, and we might be cleansed, and we might be invited into new life. God is giving you the code. Life and eternal life comes not through your self-belief and not through my performance and not through our abilities. It's by grace through faith in Jesus. Again, this is such good news for us as we look at a text that has a lot of what we do. In a culture that's a lot about what we do. In a book that's a lot about what we do. In series, it's a lot about what we do, but it's first about what Christ has done. You want to know how to flourish? Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Everything we talk about flows from that. Everything else we're going to talk about now into eternity. And some of what we see flow from that are through 1 John, there's three primary tests or evidences that continue to get repeated and interwoven to say, if you really believe that Jesus is the Christ, here's some things that you'll see flowing out of your life. So these are not the things that save us. These are the things that, that verify or, or give some, some sense of, yes, I actually believe that Jesus is the Christ. And the, the three common evidences are, are doctrinal and moral and relational, or it's, what do we believe about Jesus? What do we do with God's commands, and where are we at in terms of loving God and loving others? All three of those are actually in these verses. We see all of them. What do we believe about Jesus? What do we do with God's commands? And, and are we engaged in loving God and loving others? And they, they all three are necessary, and they all three work Together, and some of, some of like why we want all of them is, you know, think about, think about what, what someone might look like as someone who professes faith in Christ, and they're really good. They're really, really good at keeping commands. They're great at obeying, but they're terrible at loving others. Like, what, how would you phrase that type of... How would you describe that type of person? The Bible would probably use language like this. They're a Pharisee. They're really, really good at, at checking all the boxes except the box to actually love their neighbors, and they're, they're self-righteous and they're judgmental, and they're harsh. Or maybe think about someone who's really, like they know the doctrine. This is a huge danger for some of us in this room. And I say this to try to kindly invite us towards self-reflection. You grew up in a church, you know the songs, you know the creeds, you know the confessions, you can quote the verses. Your doctrine is on point. But you could care less about God's commands what, what, what would we say about that person? Well, first, John, I think, would say they might be deceived. They may not actually be Christian. They actually haven't really come to believe that Jesus is the Christ. They know the phrase, but they don't believe it. It's not just the three are necessary, but they're really helpful because they speak to each other. It's 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 like taking three strands and weaving them together, and it's unbreakable as they begin to build on one another what we believe about God and Christ, what we believe about God's commands and how we follow them and conform our lives to them and, and, and how they invite us to know how to love God and love others. I, I thought about how these kind of reinforce each other this last week. It was Friday and one of my kids missed the bus to get to school and I was working from home and they, they come back in the house kind of sheepishly and they say, dad, I'm really sorry, just kind, of, kind of screwing around, missed the bus. And I was working on a sermon on loving one another, and I said, ah, come on, why couldn't you just get ready? Fine, I'll take you. So we get in the car, and we're driving, and it took two or three minutes, and then I tried to like say what I really wanted to feel, but I didn't feel, which was you know, it's okay, I'm just glad we got more time together, right? And I'm driving, which I was, and my (laughs) heart finally started to soften that way. Drop them off, and then I have to go get gas. I get gas, and I'm pulling out, and where we were, it's this intersection that gets super backed up, and it got even more backed up because someone decided to try to take a left turn when there was no place to go. And so you know how this works when someone's taking a left and they block the intersection for like three or four cycles of the light, is what happens in your heart and your head at that moment, does it look like Christ? Is there anyone that mature in this room? I'm sitting there. I'm like, you don't understand. I got to get home. You're interrupting my life. I got to tell people to love each other. Get out of the way. I'll calm it down a little bit. And then doctrine started hitting me. And the life of Christ started hitting me. God kind of taps you on the shoulder. Well, you know, Rob, I've been pretty patient with you. You know, the while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. You know, you're called to be tenderhearted. You know, you're commanded to be forbearing. What began to happen is these three evidences, these three fruits of the Spirit began to interplay. My heart began to soften. And I began to change. God is inviting us into that way of living, it, it, it really can help and it really can change. And, and one of the ways that works out is how, how we love others and how we follow God's commands. And that's what we see in the last half of verse 1 and to verse 2 and to verse 3. And, and, and it's really clear. Like if, if we look at this last half of, of verse 1 into 2, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. And by this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His Commandments, so trusting Jesus and following God and loving others, is really clear. Boy, it's a challenge. It can be a huge challenge. One of the things this text does, among many things, is it's a reminder that when you become a follower of Christ, you actually get brought into a family. There's a lot of family language in this text. You have a father. You have a big brother in Jesus. And then you're given a bunch of gospel siblings, a lot of brothers and sisters that you get put into community with, into life with. And on paper, that sounds really good, but anyone here who has siblings know that siblings have a tendency to fight and have rivalries and to know the buttons to push in each other's lives. And it becomes really, really difficult. And into that, God speaks this, everyone who loves the Father loves God. Whoever has been born of him. Did you hear that? Everyone and whoever. Every follower of Christ loves every follower of Christ. Whoever. Whether they mask or they don't mask. Whoever. Whether they're for vaccines or against vaccines. Whoever whether they're politically right or politically left, whoever. Whatever they believe about immigration, whoever. And one of the gifts we're given at this current cultural moment is to let the word of God shape us so that our disagreements do not result in despising one another. And a text like this is a is a balm and a guide to an angry, hostile, unreasonable world that is too often shaping the church instead of the church impacting the world. My brother and I, we used to fight a ton, just a, just a ton. We're, we're a year apart in school. We always did the same sports, same teams, same, like we just fought a ton. I don't think we ever, I, don't, I doubt we, either one of us would ever said, I hate my brother, at least when we weren't in the middle of a fight. But we didn't like each other very much until probably our early 20s. One of the things we would do, I don't know why my parents thought this would be a good solution, but they bought us two pairs of boxing gloves. <laughs> and so when we get angry at each other, we go in the backyard, we put the gloves on, and we would start swinging. But there's always this unspoken rule. You never hit your brother in the face. Man, you punch You shouldn't. This is not not parenting advice. Don't make this the takeaway from the sermon. But we we, we never hit in the face. Here's why I say this. Of all the things that have discouraged me most over the last year and a half, it feels like Christians have taken the gloves off and they're bare-knuckling each other in the face. With our words, with our thoughts, with our conversations about others, with others, and for sure in social media, the things we tweet, we like, and we respond to, and we post. How timely is a text like this? Because it doesn't just call us to love, it actually tells us how to love, and what this text does is, I think it's beautiful. To love each other, love everyone that's been born of God. And the way we do that is by loving God and keeping his commandments. His commandments actually tell us what love looks like and how to love. It controls the way in which we engage with one another, particularly where we don't want to be loving. I read a book this last week called The New Reformation by Shy Lin. And I thought thought the book was was very helpful. If you read it, eat the meat and spit the bones. But this, this chunk I thought was very timely for us. He says it this way, he says, when the gospel is central in my life, it shapes how I interact with Christians I disagree with. It means that I don't have to demonize other Christians. It means I can speak the truth in love with kindness, gentleness, and respect. And this next line hit me square between the eyes. We don't have the right to cast off the fruit of the Spirit in the name of standing for truth. Like, so, I got to get something on that. We don't have the right to cast off the fruit of the Spirit in the name of standing for truth. Malice, spite, argumentativeness, sarcastic mockery, belittling, and mean-spiritedness should not be named among the people of God at all, but especially when dealing with other believers. For Christians with or without large followers to regularly display this kind of behavior in public for the whole world to observe is shameful and it dishonors. The name of Christ. Now, here's, I want uh, to, those are some sharp words, I think helpful words, I think culturally appropriate words, but I do want you to hear this if you're part of Redeemer Church. It's not the bulk of you. <laughs> many of you are trying to be reasonable in an unreasonable age, many of you are trying to be loving in a hate-filled and spiteful age. And I want to encourage you with that. And the way we do that is by taking texts like this and letting them load into his, God's divine intervention where Christ loved us when we were so unlovable and loved us while we were enemies and gave his life for us while we scoffed at him. And then tells us, this is what it looks like to love, to forbear and to forgive, to be tender-hearted, to have humble minds, to outdo one another in showing honor, to love others as we love ourselves. To forgive as we have been forgiven and on and on and on. And out of this this love, one of the ways we do it, the the more we conform to God's commands, the more that we'll love and the more we love, the more we'll be uh, authentically following God's commands. And that's what we see in verse 3 is this invitation to consider the commands of God and how they weigh on our lives. For this is the love of God that we keep His commands. For most of us, that probably makes a ton of sense. This, if you love somebody, you try to follow the things that matter to them. I think the next phrase is the one that, that sounds really good, but I don't know if it lands in a way of like, that makes sense to me. And his commands are not burdensome. I don't know about you, but I've tried following commands, and I don't, <laughs> I don't do that great at it. It's hard to obey. It's difficult to obey. There's lots of things... To follow. There's lots of reasons to not want to follow his commands. And so how is it that they cannot be burdensome? How are they not weighing us us down? We're gonna pause here because because I think if we can see how they're not burdensome, it'll be one of the best insights you get out of 1 John that will make the great, some some really distinct impact into our lives. The word burdensome, it can mean to be heavy or troublesome or cruel. I heard this one translation, irksome. That was a great, like, God's commands are not irksome. When I was in high school, my dad decided to put some house rules up on the fridge. When I walked in and I saw those. I was like, that was irksome. <laughs> Tell me, this is what I want it to be. This is how to do it. I'm sure they were good good rules, good house rules, but they definitely, I didn't receive them as, these are, these are things that aren't burdensome to me because they were taking away the things that I wanted to do when I wanted to do them. And I think some of us, As we come to faith in Christ, as we can bring that way of thinking into our relationship with God's instructions, we can say, you're you're assaulting my independence, you're taking away my freedoms, you're micromanaging my life, you're bossing me around, and into that is a text like this, but his commands are not burdensome, they're not to weigh us down and to harm us. What if? What if he knows best? really simple. But what if God knows best? What if he knows how we work best? What if he knows how we can enjoy his creation without being enslaved to it? What if God was a really good father, the best father, with the most gracious and wise rules for us? And what if he made those rules and those commands known to us in the midst of a world that has so many competing claims about what helps humans flourish. I love the way G.I. Packer says, we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. We're not helping ourselves out by by saying, I'm going to go it my way, or I'm going to adopt this, or I'm going to take this piece, or I'm going to kind of mash together whatever feels right to me, when God who created you, and designed you. Remember, He goes first, gave His Son for you. He said, this is how you can live fullest. Look at three ways. I'll, I'm going to speed up a little bit. Well, Let's look at three ways quickly. These commands are not burdensome. Um, one of them is this is doable. It's doable. I was walking through my neighborhood this last week, and I have some friends that uh, they were moving. Um, they're kind of like, patio furniture and and tables and, and things, and I saw them, and they had some help, but I was like, I'll come help you, so I jog over as slow as I could so most of it would be done by the time I got there, but I finally got there, and there was a picnic table, and they were busy carrying something, and I looked at the picnic table, and I said, I can get it. I got it. Like, no, 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 we'll help us. Like, no, 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 I got it. So I lean over, I kind of turn the table up on the side, and I try to like find the fulcrum and balance it, and I pick it up, and I carry it about three feet, and I dropped it. Like, no, 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 we'll seriously help you because and, and, they probably don't want me to break the table, and I'm sure myself. But I said, no, no, no problem. I used to carry stuff like this all the time. So I grab it again, and I pick it up, and I go like three feet, and I drop it again. And then I went home, and I laid on the couch. If you try and carry God's commands apart from God's help, you will be unbelievably burdened by them. But what does this text say back in verse 1? You've been born of God. It's talking about the work of the Spirit to come and give you not just a new philosophy, but a new life, new affections, a new heart, new power, new abilities. The very Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that conquered death, dwells in you. So when God says, here's how I want you to live, He's not leaving you short of the power to actually be able to do it. It's by the Spirit. I love the way John Stott says it. He says, the new birth is a supernatural event which takes us out of the sphere of the world where Satan rules into the family of God, we have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear Son. I love this line: "The spell of the old life has been broken, I'm saying you're not stuck when God gives his commands, you're not stuck if you're in Christ, because in Christ the Spirit has changed you and is changed. you have been born, it's happened, it's done, and the impacts of that continue to go on. So it's doable by the Spirit, but it's also doable by degrees. And I hope this is a deep encouragement to those in the room with very tender and sensitive conscience. There's nothing in this text that says to obey perfectly. There's nothing in this text that says to believe perfectly. There's nothing in this text that says to love perfectly. There's only one that's done that, and it's Jesus the Christ. And that's why we throw our hope on him because he's the one that loved perfectly and obeyed perfectly and, and believed perfectly. And so what allows us to be doable is to realize that we get to do it by degrees. We get to have true obedience, but it's not flawless and that's okay because there's one whose obedience is flawless, Jesus Christ the righteous. Sometimes that looks like partial obedience Sometimes that looks like, hey, I finally got there, obedience. That was what I experienced in the car at an intersection. For some of us, it looks like I'm not quite there yet, but I want to get there, obedience, or, or I'm not quite there, but I want to want to get there, obedience. And all of that is actually the work of the Spirit in your life. I love the way J.D. Greer says, he says, often the strongest evidence of my growth in grace is my growth in the knowledge of my need for grace. My awareness, I wake up, boy, I need a Savior boy, I need help. Boy, I feel stuck. God, would you help me? Or would you want me to want to be helped? They're doable. It's desirable. James Boyce says it like this. He says, the life of God within makes obedience to the commands possible, and the love which the Christian has for God and for other Christians makes this obedience desirable. Part of why God's commands aren't burdensome is because they're doable, but they're also desirable. They're good. They're good. God's commands tell us how life works best. It He's trying to prevent pain. He's trying to help produce flourishing in life. He's saying, do this and things will be better for you. And for those around you, don't do this because that's going to hurt you. Now, many of us, I'm for sure this way. Um, Many of us, we still, we hear the rules and we say, I still want to find out on my own. I kind of want to see if that's really the best route or not. So uh, I had one of these uh, five years old or so and We had the, you know, don't grab the hot oven rule, like many of us probably had the don't grab the hot oven rule. My mom was making cookies, and and I wanted to disregard the don't grab the hot oven rule. And so the timer goes off, and I go over to the oven, and I open up the door of the oven, and I reach in with my little five-year-old hands, and I grab the rack of the oven, and I start to pull it back. It did not feel very good. I got three cookies out of it, but it didn't feel... (laughs) Very good. Some of us do that. We say, I'm going to figure it out on my own. I'm going to keep doing my thing. And we keep burning ourselves unnecessarily. When God's like, my commands aren't burdensome. I want to help you. So I, I try to apply this to myself. I, I try to think of one thing in my life. Maybe you can come up with it. If you can, let me know after the service. I try to think of one thing in my life that went better because I disobeyed God. One thing. One thing. So I started trying to personalize. I was like, well, would my marriage be better if I disobey God? Would my kids feel more safe and cared for if I disobey God? Would I be a better pastor if I disregarded more of his commands? Would my neighbors feel more loved if God's word was less weighty in my life? And I, now, I want it to be weightier. I want to obey more. It, I, I'm a work in progress to the map. But let's say I cared less. Would that go well for anybody? I can't imagine there's anyone that would say, yeah, things went better when I just didn't care what God said. God's commands aren't burdensome because God's commands are always perfectly and altogether true and lovely. The alternative is actually what's heavy. Like, sin is heavy. And the fallout in our relationships when we disobey God's commands, that's heavy. And the toll it takes on our psyche, that's heavy. Sean O'Donnell, Douglas Sean O'Donnell, says it like this. He says, slavery to sin is hollow. It makes us feel empty inside, yet heavy. It weighs down our conscience. So God's commands, they're they're doable, but they're also desirable. Let me give you the third reason they're not burdensome. They are done. They're already perfectly done, but not by you, but by Christ. I want to remind you of how this text begins and point to how it ends. It starts with belief in Jesus and it ends with belief in Jesus. And everything we do operates in those two poles. Everything is about the one who perfectly obeyed, and He is our righteousness, and He's the one that performed, and He's the one that loved. And my confidence in Him, in my, or my trust in Him, is, is what makes us right with God, not the way we love, and not the way we perform, and not the way we believe. And so partly why they're not burdensome is we don't have to be afraid to fail to keep them because Christ has already taken the punishment for our failures. He's already, as First John said, the propitiation for everyone who believes. He's the wrath-bearing offering when I screw up like a knucklehead. Christ perfectly obeyed. I don't go before the Father with my track record. I go before God with Christ. So I don't have to be afraid. There's no guilt. I don't have to be ashamed. I don't have to be afraid. We get to come in Christ. Summarize it like this. Our security is not, nor will it ever be, dependent on our maturity or our progress. It is only and ever dependent upon Jesus, period, full stop. That's why Christ said, we won't put the text up, but in Matthew it says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. My heart is gentle and lowly, it's accessible to you. And what Christ is saying is, in my perfections, I'm gonna bring you next to me, I'm gonna train you and teach you and grow you, but I'm gonna do it under my grace. And maybe you already see where this is going, but that's how we overcome the world. That's how we get to verses 4 and 5. The word overcome, it's the, the word Nike means to win, and the world. And if you're going to try to unpack what kind of world we overcome, you could just flip the three evidences of 1 John, a world that is Christless and, and, and often aimless and unfortunately loveless, and it's saying you no longer have to live under that pattern. That dominion can be gone. You can be about Jesus, and you you can be about human flourishing and God's commands, and and you you can be about loving those that are not very lovable. That's what it's saying, that we we, we overcome in those ways. And how? Well, verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Everything comes from that. Not our behavior first, but belief in the work of Christ. Everything flows from it. Howard Marshall says it like this. Jesus Christ has defeated death. And anybody who can defeat death can defeat anything. Our disbelief. Our disobedience. Our lack of love. Christ Jesus can defeat it all. And when he does... Everything changes. Here's the code. Here's the secret to human flourishing. Here's how to overcome. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we want to recognize from a text like this that you have to go first. Your grace has to come. We can temporarily... Try and follow and obey and, and, and try to conjure up belief, but, we, but, but really what's lasting is we need you to work. And so would you work by the Spirit? Father, I pray that you would work on the hearts in this room that came that do not know Jesus as the Christ, that they would, they would be so overwhelmed and so tired of trying to live in such a way to right themselves in a culture of canceling, of dragging up things from 20 years ago that were posted or said, constantly being afraid for how they perform and how they'll be seen and how many people will like and all these things, God, I pray that you would invite them to an easier yoke, which is Jesus, that they would see their need for him and they would call on him today as Lord and a Savior. They would turn from trying to perform their way towards certain sense of salvation or rightness, whether it's cultural or whether it's before you, and they would just throw themselves on Christ. I pray for those here who have been Christians for six decades. May the good news of what Christ has done not be old to them. May you rewarm their hearts with the love of the Father and the work of the Son, testified to by the Spirit. For all of us in between, God, would you do the same? Would you show off Christ and allow us to leave this place, this little moment where we gather as we enter into the world, perfectly equipped for what we're about to face, not through our performing and not through our doing, but through trusting in Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.